I am Brother Cornell West. This is Chris Hedges. I'm Rosa Clemente. Hey, what's up? This is Chuck D, Public Enemy Prophets of Rage. And this is Newsbeat. Hey, everybody. This is Manny Faces, co-producer, audio editor, and host of Newsbeat, the award-winning podcast that melds hard-hitting journalism with independent hip-hop to shine a light on critical social justice issues, policies, and people far too often underreported on or flat out ignored. Now, in this episode, we dig deep into plea bargaining. Now, y'all most likely know what this is. If you get arrested and charged with a crime, prosecutors may suggest you cop to a lesser offense instead of going to trial. And typically, they'll tell you it'll look better on your record or entail less time in jail or cost less than if you're convicted of your original charge. Plus, and this is a big one, if you're being held pre-trial because you can't afford bail and you agree to this plea deal now, you may be able to get to walk. The truth of the matter is that plea bargaining has become the de facto standard of the U.S. criminal justice system in securing convictions. In fact, in some jurisdictions, 99% of cases end this way. Combined with money bail and harsh sentencing practices, it arms prosecutors across the country with enormous leverage to convince defendants to accept plea deals, even if they're innocent. How does this affect Americans' constitutional rights to a trial by a jury of your peers? And how the hell did our democracy even end up this way? Well, explaining all of this and more for us are Alice Fontier, Managing Director at the Community-Based Public Defender Office Neighborhood Defender Service, Carissa Byrne-Hessick, criminal law professor at the University of North Carolina, director of the Prosecutors and Politics Project, and author of the upcoming book, Punishment Without Trial, Why Plea Bargaining is a Bad Deal, and Taya Johnson, associate professor of law at Rutgers Law School. Our incredible musical guest is the prolific hip-hop artist Silent Night, our artist in residence. And just a quick reminder, if you like what we do, give us a rating and a review on your podcast app. Every little bit of love helps. Also, feel free to check out usnewsbeat.com for all of our previous episodes, full narrative stories that accompany each episode, extended guests and artist bios, and more. Okay, here it is, our latest drop. This is Plead Guilty or Else. In my career, I've represented thousands of people and you know the vast majority resulted in a, a plea bargain of some sort. I could pick any case, quite frankly, but the general approach is, you know, if you are charged with something small, a, a misdemeanor that probably wouldn't resolve in jail no matter what happened, you might get a plea offer the very first day you appear in court. So, you know, when you show up for your arraignment on the charge, when you find out what the charges are, the judges talk, you know, if the charge is bail eligible, there's a discussion about bail. And then also the prosecutor will make an offer very often on that case. And so you might have one court appearance where you have no information. You met your lawyer 10 minutes ago and you're accepting a guilty plea. That happens all day long into the night in every court in New York State. According to the U.S. Sentencing Commission, over 90% of convictions in the federal system come from guilty pleas. For state systems, it's around 95%. Could plea bargaining contribute to this? After all, in 1970, the Supreme Court established the constitutionality of plea bargaining, but warned that it would have serious doubts if the encouragement of guilty pleas by offers of leniency substantially increased the likelihood that defendants advised by competent counsel 
counsel would falsely condemn themselves. I went to go visit on uh, the criminal court in Brooklyn to see, you know, just people there on misdemeanor charges, most of whom had been, they weren't being held before trial. They were just coming back for court appearances. They'd plead guilty too. And they'd plead guilty because they had to keep coming back and back and back over and over and over again. They'd show up and it would just be like a status conference where everyone would just check in and then they'd set another date. There's all of these different ways that people end up pleading guilty. That's what they end up doing sort of over and over again across all types of cases. And I met the attorney that was assigned to the case. He was a public defender. Um, I said, what's going on? He said, well, you're being charged with um, a kidnapping a sexual assault. Now, at that point, I went ballistic. I was like, no, you got the wrong person. I'm here for this. I don't know what you, what's going on. You got the wrong guy. I don't know where this comes from. them false allegations. I mean, this f false in prison. I mean, it, it happened so fast. This attorney, he came in and told me that the prosecutor office had a plea agreement for me. I'm like, plea agreement? I, I didn't even do it. You know, I took, I pled not guilty. I'm innocent. He was just pressure. And he was like, if you don't take this deal, they only offer you two years. You'll be home in two years. And if not, you know, they're going to take it off the trial and the judge is ready to give you life sentence if you get found guilty. And I think you're going to get found guilty. And this is my attorney telling me, this is the one person I had to, to there to help me. I, I felt like I was by myself. The simple reality is that the guilty plea process has swallowed the entire criminal legal system. And that's true across states. Federally, I think it's quite, it's even worse, quite frankly. In New York, the number of cases that are resolved without a trial um, fluctuates between 98 and 99%. Obviously, there are some, many cases that are, are dismissed or declined to prosecute or, you know, don't result in a plea. But almost all guilty verdicts are obtained via plea. Bail is also tightly connected with plea bargaining in the same way that sentencing is, in the same way that the number of, of crimes we have on the books is. So plea bargaining really touches everything. Bail is a simple concept. You put up money as an incentive to show up to your court date. But the cash bail system in the United States is riddled with problems. The average savings of an American is under $400. So when you're given typically a bail amount and that's over that, you're not going to be able to afford it. Bail is a right. Release before trial is a right. When a person's not guilty, they have the right to be free until they're found guilty. For too many, the difference between incarceration and freedom can literally be a few hundred dollars. Two billion dollars is roughly how much money the bail bond business reportedly takes in across the country every year. Who pays? Underprivileged people, under arrest, who find themselves facing a decision. Sit in jail for months to await trial, or pay a bail bondsman to get them out. The way that plea bargaining and bail or pretrial detention are connected is that your chances are much higher of pleading guilty if you're going to be held pretrial rather than released to fight your case from the outside. So you're just much more inclined to say, let's just be done with this. I want to get out of here rather than than fight the case. And that's because a lot of cases, they last months, years, potentially. That's a long time to say you're going to stay in jail. 
and fight your case, even if you're innocent. Even innocent people are are often coerced into pleading guilty because they will just end up staying in jail until they've had the opportunity to fight their case. And we can imagine that for you know many rational people, that just would not make sense. It would not make sense, particularly since jails are often dangerous places. They're violent places. In the moment that we're living in, they're places where you have a much higher risk of being exposed to coronavirus and then not getting very good medical treatment if you are. So there are a lot of reasons why you do not want to be in jail. There's been some great work done on this by a lot of people, but Lucien Dervan and Vanessa Edkins have written recently about just how much pretrial detention increases the likelihood that someone will take a guilty plea, even an innocent person. In reaction to the then rising crime rates, Congress and the states imposed all sorts of very severe penalties, mandatory minimums of 5, 10, 15, 20, in some cases even more years. And for these and other reasons, as these laws came into place, there was a tremendous penalty attached to going to trial. And the statistics are really quite striking, starting in the mid-80s and continuing right down to the present, instead of 15 to 20 percent of all criminal cases going to trial, quickly declined to something like 3 percent. During the tough on crime era, which I would argue we're still very much living in now, there was a turn towards very harsh mandatory minimum sentences and many other sentencing laws that could create incentives to plea bargain. So the use of enhancements, all sorts of ways to increase the sentence. Once you had all these mandatory minimums, all these enhancements, all these incredibly harsh sentencing laws that provided no discretion to the judge and put all the power in the hands of the prosecutor to decide how the case was going to proceed based on how they charged the case and what sentences those charges corresponded with, you now have a much, much greater incentive for the average defendant to plead guilty. Because essentially, you're often facing huge sentences, sentences that are out of line, even with what the prosecutor might think is an appropriate resolution for the case. And if you proceed to trial, that's going to be your sentence. If it's a mandatory sentence, there's no escaping that sentence. You now have this profound incentive to plea bargain the case, to resolve it before you get to trial. What you're watching is not reality. I promise you it's a fallacy, doctored in actuality, postured and partly panicky, popular propaganda piece, good for the gander and the geese, a piece of cake that let us taste, say we had a feast, uh, that's good TV, the people want blood, uprisings down this week, the ratings up, how many cases even make it to a judge, the percentage close to one, the precedent is bugged, the American system that we boast about is flawed, that's an understatement, y'all got the gall to call it law, misdirection. Wish I knew it from before, thought I'd get a fair shot What a crock, what a all Law and order was a popular show and it still is If you thinking that's how shit really works, then you tripping Told me to take a plea, but I turned it down ASAP Lawyer in my ear like Diddy, take that, take that It's tempting for us all to think that plea bargaining is a modern phenomenon But that's not true at all The position that we're in now, where only a tiny, tiny sliver of cases go to trial, that's relatively new. That happened, you know, within the past few decades. But plea bargaining actually became normal and accepted long before then. It became quite popular uh, around Prohibition era um, because it was used to, in often corrupt ways, resolve cases that were related to prohibition arrests. 
it didn't become mainstream or normalized, I should say, by the courts until pretty recently, around the 1970s. Not too long ago, any discussion of crime and its rapid rate of increase would find the term law and order used as a matter of course. Those who feel the courts have been too lenient and that permissiveness has played a part in crime's increase would use the term to describe what should be restored. I played in a movie some years ago called Law and Order. It wasn't a very good movie, as some of you who stay up for the late show have probably discovered. But it was a story of a town marshal who was dedicated to preserving law and order, hence the title. The phrase is perfectly respectable, at least it always has been. We're a nation of laws, proud that we place our faith in law rather than in men. And of course, civilization is built upon the ability of humans to live together in an orderly society. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. In order to fight and defeat this enemy, it is necessary to wage a new all-out offensive. All-out offensive. All-out offensive. At some point, somebody got pressured into pleading guilty for something, and they were mad about it. And so they they started challenging these plea bargains, especially as we saw states start to enact things like habitual felon laws or other crimes that had like mandatory minimums associated with them, so that a prosecutor could say, "Plead guilty, or I'll I'll recharge you with this more aggravated offense." People were saying, well, wait a minute, doesn't that violate my rights? Isn't that you saying, you, the government, that you will punish me for insisting on my right to trial? You're not allowed to do that. And so the Supreme Court in the 1960s had decided a case where somebody, a criminal defendant, had appealed something that had happened in the trial court and won on appeal and the case was sent back down and the trial court had to do some more things and then had to impose a new sentence and the trial court gave a harsher sentence and it was very clear that the trial court had given the harsher sentence because the defendant had appealed and the supreme court said look you can't do that you can't give somebody a harsher sentence just because they exercised their right to an appeal a couple years later what happens somebody's like well wait a second I can't get a harsher sentence just because I've insisted on going to trial. That fits just into the same analytical framework as punishing me for taking an appeal. Supreme Court got the case and the Supreme Court was like, nope, sorry. And the reasoning's pretty remarkable. Instead of grappling with the fact that people were being punished for insisting on a constitutional right, the court instead focused on two important things. They focused on the fact that the defendant wasn't being forced to plead guilty. So the defendant got to choose and they thought that that mattered. The other thing that they focused on was they said that it was a, it was a bilateral agreement, right? It was a give and take. It was a negotiation and that the defendants might think that they're better off if they did this. Since the 1970s, we've seen a precipitous drop in trials and a tremendous move towards more and more cases being plea bargained. More than 95% of cases are resolved by plea bargaining or by guilty pleas that are often the result of a plea negotiation. And in some places, it's it's 100% of cases are resolved by plea bargains. In some places, you don't even have cases going to trial anymore. There are certain federal courts where they haven't held a trial in years. So plea bargaining is very much now the norm. It's the way things are done. It's the bread and butter of the criminal justice system. 
Lawyer in my ear like Diddy, take that, take that Shining suit face, thought he was trying to bring Mace back Can't believe he do me like this, where the faith at? All I'ma say is in a way it's like the cheesecake path Which is to say that it's their bread and butter huh. Criminal justice system doesn't function Unless adults and young kids get pressured and rushed in To this disgusting conundrum, unjust But it's hiding now, thinking that we have a right to trial They like to smile, say you think about your wife and child While systemic, if you fight it, get a harsher sentence Shark infested, every outcome break apart defendants Carstengenic, that's exactly how it was intended Tried to fight it, but the Supreme Court upheld it Hold them content, the whole thing is a mockery Now I understand why we look down at cop and police Chiseling away at our constitutional rights is exactly what our system has done. A little bit at a time until we have arrived at the place where your presumption of innocence, your right to present witnesses, your right to have a defense are included only in the trial. And you have to give up, actually waive as part of your plea allocution, every single one of those constitutional rights. You know, your right to testify, you know, uh, or not. <laughs> All of those things are built in. Like evidence that was or was not appropriately secured. You know, you can't challenge that if you're taking a plea. Let's say you're charged with possession of a gun. Serious offense and you're typically held in on bail leading to that. If the search that led to that was problematic and you have a hearing to challenge that search, they won't make you an offer anymore. Or if they do, you have to plead and waive your right to appeal. If the search is problematic and the judge denies it, so you're still there, you're stuck. You don't have a defense at trial, but you have to go to trial in order to potentially preserve your right to appeal. And so at every juncture, there is a choice that pushes pleas and pushes you to give up your constitutional rights. Give up your Fourth Amendment right against improper searches and seizures. Give up your, your Fifth Amendment right to remain silent. Give up your, your Sixth Amendment right to present a defense. All of those things, the true literal center of the Bill of Rights, surround trial. And you have to give those things up in order to take a plea. And that's what, you know, 98 to 99% of people are doing. As a young attorney, I tried 15 cases, which is unheard of now. It's impossible. Even if you are just like, I don't negotiate and I take every single case to trial, you can't do it. The judges will just adjourn cases. They say there's no courtrooms available. There's not the resources to try the case. They'll push pleas. And so that system is part of the issue. Also, the simple fact that as cases get adjourned and they last longer, people get ground out. Their lives are moving forward. And if a case is going on, particularly a lower level case for a year, two years, three years, it becomes really onerous to continue coming back to court and they're more likely to take a plea. So there is a lot of systemic change that needs to happen. There are, I think, a lot of ways to improve the number of cases that go to trial. One is prosecutors should engage in many fewer what I call hard bargaining tactics. You know, take it or leave it offers. This is going to be on the table today or you'll never see this offer again. One of the big issues is the lack of discovery that defendants get before they make the decision to plead guilty. So many defendants are making a decision to plead guilty before they've ever seen any 
of what's in the prosecutor's file. They don't know what the prosecutor has on them. They don't often know if the prosecutor has evidence of their innocence. You know, there are cases of defendants plea bargaining and then it comes out that there was actual evidence of their innocence that was known to the prosecutor and in the prosecutorial file. Defendants should have an opportunity to review the discovery to understand what's the case against me. We should see plea bargaining as not the problem, but the symptom. If you want to reform plea bargaining, you can't just look at plea bargaining. You have to say, what is plea bargaining responding to? Plea bargaining is responding to over-criminalization. Plea bargaining is responding to a glut of mandatory sentences, collateral consequences, and other consequences that are tying people's hands and creating forms of plea bargaining that might really bother us or make us uncomfortable. But what's bothering us and making us uncomfortable, I would argue, is the system in which it's developed. Yeah. Phantom jury, no peers, just handy new years. Tries themselves and now rare how we get here. Convey a belt, they don't care if you're guilty or not. One little notch and the system will collapse on the spot. And if that's the case, what kind of system is it? If our rights have been chiseled away, little by little, no presumption of innocence. Right to present witnesses, rights to a defense, all wave. This shit is criminal. Then you got imbeciles like Tom Cotton, sweeten that under incarceration's the problem. With the highest population incarcerated. Well, let's talk about the root and systemic changes. How can we raise cases and make them stop intimidation? Engaging with outrageous, leave it or take it. They heard please was the magic word and ran with it. Man, listen, it's still a system until we fix it.